What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. In the studio, despite the coronavirus, we've got Jake Dello, Kiara Mitchell, Pete McKenzie, and we're going to end up probably talking a lot about this shit. But. Yeah, there's very little social distancing being modeled here. We're this is like clustered a, around a, table. a three foot by three foot booth, <laughs> and it's the Gen Zers who probably are like the patient zeros for all this. I had a great discussion before the podcast about COVID-19 because coronavirus is the family of viruses that cause COVID-19, which is this strain, mm. but it also causes influenza, the SARS, MERS, and the common cold. Mm. I think full disclosure now, I have it, guys. and uh, <laughs> But we're here now, you know. We might as well just continue and... You know, yeah, see, where, like, see where it gets us. You know, I saw a mainstream, like a mainstream news article in in the Asia Times. Don't go to it. Asia Times is like a legit website that does Asia uh, news. And a columnist for them actually wrote about basically a conspiracy theory that the Chinese created this as a bio weapon as part of their bid for hegemony. I'm not saying they're not bidding for hegemony. That's like a different question. But the idea that they created this as a bioweapon, first of all, like biological weapons are like very hard to use strategically because you can't <laughs> fucking control them and you're going to have to harm yourself and you don't know what the upper end. It's just, why am I even engaging with it? Right. Like this. Is, it's just irresponsible that it's out there. Chinese bioweapon. Is it more or less insane than Rush Limbaugh saying it was the CIA to stop people going to Trump rallies? Did, he, did Rush Limbaugh say yep, that? Yep, yep, he did. He said the coronavirus was a way for the CIA to stop people going to the Donald Trump rallies. Um, actually, that's a reasonable segue to one of the uh, <laughs> quick hits because there is the the war between China and the U.S. has it's escalated in like the most perverted of ways into this conspiracy theory war on one side you have the chinese bioweapon thing and this is this is consequential dangerous like senator tom cotton yeah. notorious uber hawk <laughs> is promising revenge against china for what they've done here <laughs> first we take greenland then we take wuhan <laughs> like, you think you're gonna get away with this like, you fucks you insane. know like that's <laughs> 
I got your number. <laughs> I did see that uh, the president, the commander in chief, did refer to coronavirus as the China virus. Yes, and he, then, did, so he like, did say it. How in how insular do you have to be to call it the China virus? There's a layer of clash of civilizations on yeah. all of this that is just wildly disturbing. And it's like accelerating the conspiracy theoriness of this. Small surprise that fucking Trump is like fueling conspiracy theories. The bigger surprise and like to me, the disturbing is that China is doing this too. We used to phrase this the opposite way, but China is no better than the Trump administration. And so like the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, this is one of the quick hits, is actively promoting the conspiracy theory that the coronavirus started with uh, U.S. Army. It, it is the American COVID-19, and Russia has teamed up with them in some bizarro, great-powered detente <laughs> propaganda campaign <laughs> to also promote the same thing. And, like, so they're on message together against us, but we're no saints, and everybody's working off of misinformation— it's a comedy of errors that ends up having heads of state being like, I swear to Christ, I will murder you. And so like, what? this is a little bit dangerous. It's a bit of a who farted situation, isn't it? Because, you, you know, it's just like, who did that? And it's trying to, no, nah, he did. And Russia's like, yeah, 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 he did. That's not going to be the title of this episode. <laughs> it's sibling squabbling over who took the last cookie. Yeah. Cookie jar. That's if it's more an polite. issue. If it's an issue of who farted, then surely surely it's proof that China is the source of the virus, because whoever smelt it dealt it, right? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, the danger of analogies. Oh, man. Uh, primary school. That, that's, primary school is worth it just for that one joke. Yeah, jeez, Louise. So, related quick uh, I don't know how you, I don't know how to segue from that one. Um, but also on China, and also on theme with uh, the great sort of danger built into this, China is now expelling um, American journalists from New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, a few others, too. And you know who they're not expelling? Fucking Bloomberg News. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Because Bloomberg News is basically Chinese state media. The shilling pays off. Like, <laughs> yeah. You do it for a reason. <laughs> yeah. So, but the, uh, like, I know a couple of reporters at uh, the Journal and at the Post, and they're already out. Um, and it's, it's a shit show. It's super dangerous in the context of, like, we're all counting on reasonably accurate information to come out of China as they claim they're containing the virus. And like, oh, no new cases. Oh, really? How do we know you kicked out all the fucking reporters that speak English? You know what I mean? So, like, there's a huge problem there, right? Um, and this is in the context of, like, China is – maybe we're talking about this later in the episode. I don't know. But China is actively trying to, like, make a symbolic bid f as being, like, the world's public goods provider to Italy, to fucking the bizarro Serbia thing, if you're not following that. <laughs> this uh, – Serbia basically say, like literally saying that uh, there's no such thing as EU solidarity and China is the only country we can count on, which is like... Which Italy would probably agree with at this point. And yeah, and Italy would too. And it's the Trump setting the dumpster fire and then putting it out situation, though. This came from China. It was exacerbated because China lied initially because they're a 
a one-man rule system. And ultimately, they send you a bunch of masks to manage the damage. And that means that they get to be the center of the world. And the sad thing is, that's infinitely more than the U.S. is doing. <laughs> that's very unlike Serbia to be like a flashpoint situation. So weird, that's right? It's very unlike it's unlike the Balkan area. I don't know a ton about Serbia itself in the modern era. I know a lot about it in like 1914, <laughs> but uh, there, I know that Chinese money is awash in the capital. Like people who've been on the ground are like, it's basically like civilization there has depended on Chinese funds for a long time. In other news, also not good news. There's no, basically no good news today. Mike Pompeo, sort of the Secretary of State, or he's posturing as if he's one. He yesterday announced fresh sanctions on Iran, which we'll talk about later, but he also actively threatened the staff of the International Criminal Court and their families for pursuing uh, investigations of U.S. citizens suspected of war crimes. And the, it's no surprise that like the Trump administration rejects international law and they've made no bones about rejecting the legitimacy of the ICC. But this is coercion of an international institution, the one that's in charge of prosecuting war crimes incidentally. And it's not just threatening the institution, but it's like going after the families. This is, it's peak rejection of the rule of law. I mean, like, what? To all Americans, even if you don't and aren't happy that Bernie will not be the candidate, please just vote to get Trump out. We really don't yeah. want him in. Assuming please. we have elections, I'm really worried about that too. Yeah, that's insane. That's actually insane. There's no... That is, like, one of the things that stands alone, where you can't yeah. give... There's no context that excuses. There's no <laughs> rationale that explains. It's just fucked. Yeah, we're in trouble. And yet we're still in Iraq, where Daniel Larison, friend of the pod, writes a piece in The American Conservative saying we need to get out. So shout out to Daniel Larison. It's the only shout outs this week, I think. Oh, no, no. Stay off Twitter shout outs coming later. Yeah. Uh, it's been a long week. Okay. <laughs> Let's just move on before uh, everything falls apart. Yeah. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for prediction market this week, we're going to start off with a China-Russia question. Will a trilateral meeting between the United States, China, and Russia regarding, regarding the New START treaty happen before the end of 2020? Being optimistic. Well, being optimistic, the U.S. would try to renew New START instead of sabotage it by bringing in the Chinese. That would be optimism. Uh, I'm going to say that there actually, I'm going to say that there will not be a meeting before 2020 trilateral leaders meeting. I think there was going to be, but now it's a little bit all hands on deck. Also, China and the U.S. are in the midst of the conspiracy theory wars. So, like, it's hard to see how, like, normal, well, that wouldn't have even been normal diplomacy, but, like, posturing like normal diplomacy, it's hard to see even that happening right now. Um, and this was all fake anyway. Like it was designed yeah. to get favorable news coverage and public opinion. So I'm going to say no. And also Trump doesn't believe in arms control. It's it's a shame Alex Jones showed everyone who he really was before this happened. He would have a field day with these conspiracies. Oh, yeah. Well, I heard he's selling supplements that claim to cure COVID-19. 
Till you do Which that is after like, a street driving convention. This is why people are going to die, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Right, question two. Will we see any attempts to end the oil war between Saudi Arabia and Russia before August? Man, that is very pegged to what happens with the pandemic. Because the pandemic is crushing oil demand. And that was the trigger, in a sense, for Russia cutting from the cartel. I'm going to say... Man, this is not optimistic. I'm going to say that we will not see any attempts to end the oil price war, understanding that the oil price war is um, artificial sort of kneecapping of, of the price of oil exports. I'm going to say no. Right. I'm probably going to get a bit of shit for question three. but I haven't sort vet, of... I, Normally we try to vet these yeah. so that they're proper questions, but we didn't I have time this time. I usually go through about three no's. <laughs> before, I, before I get to a really good one. And I think I've hit the nail on the head because in case, question three, will we see any international action concerning the border conflict between the Kenyans and Somalis? You, you know that border conflict? fucker. <laughs> what? You know, I just assume being like a professor in international relations, you just, you just like know about international relations. So like, I just thought, you know... Only thing I know about Kenya is that Obama was born there. Ooh. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Making a joke. <laughs> just kidding. Unless. Um, Jay came into the studio with this and was like, hey guys, uh, um, this was, my question's a bit out of the blue this week. We checked it out. <laughs> ben wasn't able to see it. We just looked at it and cracked up. Just at the ab in the absolute knowledge that Van would have no idea what the fuck is going on. Yeah, it's so far out of the blue. It's really not, guys. I mean, I'm just. It just seems like I'm a bit learned, but that's all right. Essentially, I, what's happening is there's civil unrest in Somalia, shock horror, mm. and there's a precedent internationally that Kenya might take advantage of this and annex part of Somalia. So Damn. if that the only wants thing to be I know about case, Somalia is Black Hawk Down. Um, <laughs> You're not doing credibility, man. Just... Well, let me see. Let me see if there's a way that I can provide a plausible answer from from those two data points. I'm sure I can piece together something credible. You know, what, man. I'm going to waive the need to answer this question, but I think this proves what happens when you put a moratorium on prediction market. This is the sort of shit I have to come up with. I'm going to predict so... yes. Okay. I can imagine Kenya moving in on Somalia if Somalia doesn't exercise functional control of its sovereignty and there's no global cop on the beat right now anyway you know like if there's ever been a part of the world where just everyone's tuned out it's africa and i don't know if kenya has designs on somalia like you say which i have no fucking idea about to be honest then uh it seems plausible to me so yeah Right, yeah, on that note, I'll leave this shit show of a prediction market. All right. But um, thanks for the first two questions. Sorry about the last one. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe, I may be right. Maybe, yeah, I, I yeah. think you might be. And maybe this might spur our listeners to learn more about the border conflict in Jubaland and Kenya between yeah. them and Somalia. I mean, one thing that is true, I'm, I'm writing about this for somebody right now, is that this trend so far, or the pandemic itself, seems to be exacerbating bigger negative trends and like it's intersecting with other kinds of risks in the security environment. When you add that all up, it's it, it looks like a very anarchical world, very Hobbesian world. So in a Hobbesian world, guess what? Kenya invades Somalia. <laughs> that's that's the, that's my contribution. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. 
All right, so stay off Twitter, three tweets. First from Matt Zeitland, who is a reporter with bylines in uh, every manner of uh, magazine and journal and newspaper. And he just says, one way to think about social distancing is that to contribute to a great national cause in World War II, you had to like die face down in the muck on some tiny Pacific island. Now you can literally stay at home, watch The Sopranos or that Netflix dating show and be a hero. And that's <laughs> there's a there's a silver lining to every cloud, guys. Yeah, I mean it was like you know like a hundred fifty thousand times. Yeah. It's because it's an awesome money tweet. But uh, if you're not on Twitter, you wouldn't have realized the heroics of just staying at home. Don't sneeze. What the <laughs> fuck? I am... Oh my god! Oh my god! Come on! Are you shitting me? We're in a fucking three by three box, and I just. Kiara just sneezed right at me. <laughs> the tweet's really interesting because it's it sort of just shows the um, generation gap because they the the author of the tweet knows the Sopranos ended going off fifteen years ago, right? I know Sopranos is quite <laughs> yeah, a, like yeah, yeah. it's like a Gen X reference. Yeah, like. it's like you know they, they it's a great show, but it ended quite a while ago. <laughs> they didn't have that show ended. They didn't have iPhones yet. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least he knows about Netflix possible he thinks netflix is that thing where they mail you dvds <laughs> but uh, shout out anyways yeah it does it, it does put things into perspective let's just not sneeze on each other <laughs> we probably have to leave that sneeze process in so second tweet is from um friend of the pod matt corda who is a gen z or i think and he works at the federation of american scientists with uh, my buddy Adam Mount, and he is the co-founder of a new think tank called um, FP Generation, and it's it's a progressive foreign policy think tank. It's just standing up. I'm going to try to get him on the show at some point, but he just tweeted out, everyone please stop declaring war on the coronavirus. Do the wonks seriously have no alternative frames of analysis other than militarism? Um, and he's saying this, I mean, first of all, yes, obviously, shout out. I, I tweeted something very similar, but he's saying this because the fucking Atlantic Council, a think tank, probably the think tank that gets the most foreign money in Washington. They're legit and mainstream, but they're also more bought than other think tanks uh, as a ratio of how bought, how bought are you? <laughs> they're at the like 50%, everyone else is at the 40%. Yeah, something like that. Um, but the Atlantic Council published a thing by one of their fellows that was literally called Why Trump Should Trigger NATO's Article 5 Against COVID-19. And it's that is, that is peak fucking militarism. You have no solution other than to actually declare war with, with all that accompanies that, like securitizing a pandemic, a, mo a, a moment in time that recalls for like social solidarity and you're like fucking nuke them. Nuke the virus, you know. Um, so shout out to Matt Corda. Um, and then third tweet, this is going boom, 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 is from Jerry Doyle, who is also a friend of the pod, and he works for Reuters. And he is spitting hot takes all the time. And for some reason, he's just never made it into stay off Twitter. Um, but he had a good one yesterday, which was that he was, he was responding to the emerging conspiracy theory wars between China and the U.S., and he's like, um, American government officials are countering Chinese conspiracy theories with dumb conspiracy theories. And then he's like, no one ever said the Cold War 
was a smart war. And that's where we are. Like it's idiocracy plus that that fucking show about Russian spies in the eighties. Like it's it's idiocracy plus the Cold War. What is that show called? Fucking the, the America. Oh yeah. <laughs> the idiocracy plus Americans. Welcome to the idiocracy. Just, just call it the Americans for short. Um, okay. <laughs> Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. Uh, so this week we're doing an article by Mehdi Hassan in The Intercept called The Coronavirus is Killing Iranians and So Are Trump's Brutal Sanctions. It is a an intense article. According to Hassan, the death toll now stands at 988. That's going to be more by the time you hear this. And the total number of cases has crossed 16,000. Roughly 9 out of every 10 cases in the Middle East. The main responsibility for that, Hassan says, lies with the Iranian government, whose catastrophically dishonest and dismissive response left the virus to spread rapidly. But at the same time, Hassan says that the US has a responsibility because the sanction regime that they've put in place is preventing humanitarian imports. And although there's supposedly an exception for humanitarian imports, most companies aren't willing to risk it. And the Treasury Department has apparently prosecuted some companies which have been engaging in humanitarian imports, yeah. which is chilling. And so uh, as a result, Iran is now out of, out of face masks, out of surgical gowns, out of respirators, and even the basic resources necessary to make antiviral drugs. And there's precedent for re- uh, sanctions regime being relaxed in this kind of situation. When a massive earthquake killed 26,000 people in the city of Bam in southeastern Iran in December 2003, the Bush administration relaxed sanctions on Iran. Access of evil, just as a reminder. Access of evil, guys. The Bush administration. And now China and Russia have seized the moral high ground and are calling on the US to suspend sanctions to save lives. So as the number of deaths, Hassan says, in Iran from COVID-19 continues to soar, exacerbated by a horrific US economic embargo, do ordinary Americans think the price is worth it? Van, you're not necessarily an ordinary American. Uh, but I want to know. Extraordinary American, yeah. <laughs> do That's you true. think? <laughs> do you think the price is worth it? No, man. I mean, what the <laughs> fuck? The sanctions are generally like pre- like fairly ineffective most of the time. Anyways, mm. they're they they have like symbolic power. They're statements of, ironically, they're usually statements of moral authority, yeah. right? Like especially in the case of of North Korea, but in this case. And then any case where you're dealing with a regime like Iran and North Korea are the most acute cases here that I can think of where trying to apply maximum pressure sanctions on regimes who have like fairly brutal quasi totalitarian holds on power, Mm. which is inherently precarious, is your, your, your sanctions regime creates all kinds of risks just on a normal basis that like. You're going to push the regime leadership into a corner and then they'll lash out. And you're taking a big risk when you do that. And the U.S. is generally seems to be fine with that risk. I'm not. But that's most policymakers seem to be okay with that risk because at least it's like, well, it means that they would have started it. So it's worth remembering (laughs) that before the coronavirus, before the Australian fires at the start of this year, we were freaking out about a potential Iran-U.S. war. Because of exactly that, because the 
massively intense, tough sanctions regime that the Trump administration put in place backed Iran into a corner. And in 2017, it was the exact same story with North Korea, except mm. with nukes in the picture. Yeah. I mean, that's and so it was more vivid to people because of the nuke thing. Um, but it was the same thing. And so now the pandemic itself is creating this great strategic opportunity to pivot, to regain moral authority, to reduce human suffering. Uh, and the literally yesterday uh, when we recorded this, Pompeo announced new sanctions on Iran. Okay, so midstream of the pandemic, nine out of 10 cases from the Middle East in Iran, and he announced new sanctions, new sanctions. <laughs> 2020 has been wild, and it's only March. I know. It's only March. We got to still get to December. This is insane. I just don't understand. I mean, I don't understand a lot of things about the sanction regime and the rationale behind it, but I don't understand in particular what there's left to sanction. Like, how do you yeah. increase sanctions at this stage? You can always create, like, what, they, what the new ones are, it's designations against, like, naming specific individuals, and so then you start blackballing them from basically the global economy individuals like they can't even get a bank account they can't travel like um and if you're gonna like if you have reason for doing sanctions sanctions that pr physically prevent proliferation like they're the legal justification to block or intercept um illicit materials those kinds of sanctions you need because it's stopping you know weapons from spreading and you need sanctions that punish individuals who are guilty of shit. But most of the sanctions regime on Iran and on North Korea, most of the places where we do this, you have targeted sanctions layered on top of broad yeah. sanctions. And it's the broad sanctions that kill everybody. Yeah. And yeah. so that's that's the injustice here. That's where there's room to try and change, make a difference and like pivot the whole situation. But you're so wedded to your fucking militarist hockey hawk views that you are locked into maximum pressure you can't imagine not maximum pressuring so this is just the perfect demonstration well from what i see anyway of of what the ugly side of economic warfare yeah those people are going to die and i i just i'm scared that trump is too proud and his administration is too proud to admit that well there there yeah there's die. already deaths it's yeah. just that people don't conceptualize these deaths as being the result of human agency but it is in interaction with the pandemic like, and when they do conceptualize them as the result of human agency when they do understand them as a consequence of the sanctions regime in the mind of the trump administration where the ghost of john bolton lives on yeah. that's a virtue yeah. That's yeah. something to be proud of to them. Yeah. It's it's insane. Yeah, so Mehdi Hassan is always spitting so hot so hot good. takes. Like that man very is a legend. <laughs> um yeah. Charismatic analysis. That's what I call it. <laughs> um yeah, so shout out to Mehdi Hassan um and fuck the Trump administration. All right, time for Ask Me Anything where people ask me anything. So, Fahina, today, the first question is from Lobster King. Why hasn't Russia developed like China has, considering both went through human rights violations, and but only China has developed well? A very good comparative question. There's a lot of unique things about China in relation to Russia that uh, 
would help us understand the uniqueness of China or how China could rise and Russia sort of not. Um, one is that Russia is got the oil curse, the resource curse, right? So it's it's actually ironically hard to de develop a country when your your economic base is natural resources. Like that'll take you so far. It encourages corruption. Um, it makes it easier for the government to manipulate um, ownership of of uh, natural resources. So like that's one factor. Another one is that since the 70s, since Nixon opened China, the U.S. has made this neoliberal bet on engagement and economic interdependence and how that would foster political liberalization. They never made that bet with Russia. They made that with China. And so you have like China's rise is inconceivable apart from like dramatic U.S. sort of corporate and government investment in in China's success. It's like those two, like we don't think about the role that the U.S. has played in facilitating China's rise because they're like open rivals now, but that's very much the case. And like Mao or um, Deng Xiaoping's pivot to a more sort of placid foreign policy and an emphasis on like, you know, getting rich and biding your time, like that's only possible because Nixon and Kissinger and then like hit their successors were like, yeah, there's nothing there's nothing to be gained here by like making an enemy of a nuclear state. And there's a lot to be gained uh, by playing them off of the Soviet Union. And then our rationales morphed into more greedy motives later. So that was like all bolstering our reasoning for investing in China in ways that we never did with Russia. And then Russia's unique problem of like after the Soviet Union collapsed, the U.S., pushed really hard for privatization of Russian nationally owned, well, like all, all the like, basically the means of production that were owned by the state, privatized them. And the process of that was so poorly managed that Russia became an oligarchy overnight. And it's been that way ever since. Um, the second question is from Derek Smith. I saw a tweet of yours a week or two ago, um, talking about how DOD types constantly get deterrence wrong. Could you talk about this on the podcast? Mm, yes, I can. So the there, there's I've written about this elsewhere before. Maybe I'll link to it in the show notes. Actually, I probably won't bother to link to it in the show notes, but you can probably Google it. Just check my bibliography on my website. <laughs> it's, it's all there. It's all on my website. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic. <laughs> www.vanjackson.com. <laughs> Check it out. Buy me a copy. It's actually .org. But, uh, oh! Because .com is taken, so I had to use .org. Who's got the .com? <laughs> I, I want to meet that guy. .org is more professional. Let's see. It makes it an organization. It makes me sound like an company. NGO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So the Pentagon thinks about deterrence in uh, a similar way as like what we understand in IR is the cult of the offensive, which is you it's I've, I've called it before like a frictional theory of deterrence. Um, there's not really a good name for it, but it's the idea that offense is the best defense. It's the idea that you have to create friction where there is competition and rivalries. Um, you have to show, you have to signal a willingness to um, escalate and you confuse the need to signal offense with resolve. And enemies often don't perceive it that way is the problem. So you generate a lot of risks when you treat offense as the best defense. And there are times when that can make sense. 
So if you're facing a just like relentless adversary whose ambitions are no, no limits and they're like, if you're facing Nazi Germany, right? Maybe offense is the best defense. In cases that aren't Nazi Germany or don't map perfectly onto Nazi Germany, treating offense as the best defense is signaling your willingness to like use nuclear weapons by sending nuclear capable bombers and that kind of shit and flexible deterrent operations where you flow forces to the Middle East. All this stuff locks you in, makes it more likely that you're like trapping yourself in a bad situation. And in the process, you're not convincing the adversary of your resolve. You're convincing them that you're willing to do those things that you're doing. Like you think that you're signaling resolve, you're really signaling hostility. And it just forces the other guy to respond in kind because who's gonna capitulate to pressure in world politics? Like it's not, it's not rational to expect the other side to capitulate ironically. And yet we often do. And like that's the that is the problem with hawk thinking. It's this bias toward offense. Third question is from Cassius Belly with three eyes. Are you worried about white supremacy in the military ranks? And I hope Van has read the article because I have not. So uh, the thing linked to an article in the Military Times, um, which I did not read. I <laughs> I read a tweet about an article. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I've been busy. And in a nutshell, that is Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Somebody literally said that the other day. Like, I, the other day I was reading a tweet about an article. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, so I, w six years in the Air Force, uh, I worked in joint environments where it's like all the services together for most of those six years. At, for all of those six years. And um, I never actually saw racism directly, but this was also the early 2000s when like racism was socially unacceptable. And <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> like the mere accusation of being a racist was enough to keep people in their box. And that's like totally changed since 2016. Um, if you're willing to be contrarian, you can you can be racist in all kinds of ways, um, and I'm not this. It's not to say that there wasn't systemic racism, right? Like just you know uh, implicit biases against black people and women, especially, and like, that has always existed. And like it's hard to imagine a military where that doesn't exist, to be honest. Mm. But the, the actual like lynching or calling someone the N word, like very like direct action racism. I've not I never witnessed that, but I've heard anecdotally that that happens now in the military and the military is a breeding ground for fascism surprise <laughs> <laughs> well the article i found interesting it sort of makes mention that it's not so much the intelligence division of the military that we need to be worried about it's the people that we're training to fire guns and the engineers and the frontline soldiers that are the ones that we're afraid are going to develop white supremacist tendencies and they're going to come home from serving their tours of duty mm. with guns with some very malignant ideas as opposed to the intelligence division who work with intelligence and are sort of deep-rooted in the military to a different extent than a frontline soldier doing his tour of duty in Iraq. Yeah, so I read a book uh, a few years ago, or it was when Trump won the election. I went and found the book. But I read a tweet about a book. <laughs> <laughs> I read a tweet about a book, and it was a really good tweet. Uh, <laughs> um, so th 
the book, I can't remember the name of it, but it was about how Vietnam, like the soldiers who fought in Vietnam came back in precisely the conditions you said where like they were armed and they were trained and they had that uh, basically violent mindset drilled into them. And they were sort of detached from society, like there weren't good in, uh, re reincorporation mechanisms, and all of that combined, like social isolation when they came home, basically, all of that combined into that was the breeding ground for the like resurgence of white supremacy movement and the far right in the 1990s. The militia yes, so like militias became big, and Timothy McVeigh and all that stuff. So you in the Clinton administration, you saw this kind of peak. And like conspiracy theories about the government's going to get your guns and all that stuff and black helicopters. All of that was from a social base or the social origin of it. The book was claiming was um, returning soldiers from Vietnam who were had no, nowhere to go and nothing to do. And they were primed in all the wrong ways uh, psychologically. And that's that's what we've done at scale once again. Right. We're, it's in a new era. The difference is you have like a government who is dog whistling at these people and which is super dangerous, which is why like Southern Poverty Law Center records all of these new extremist groups and the numbers are they're at record numbers. It's like, yeah. And so it's very dangerous. There's a high risk here. And I don't want to like paint the military with a broadly bad brush, especially because my own experiences were fine as fascist as it is. The uh, <laughs> It's like organizationally fascist, though, not like ethno-nationalist fascist. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, yeah. There's a difference. It's supposed to be organizationally fascist. Uh, but yeah, I'm like, I'm concerned about it for sure. I just, I don't like, other than like getting Trump out, I don't know how you deal with it. Like, I don't have the intellectual toolkit for that. Well, I think it would just be a matter of maybe acknowledging it exists for one, Good maybe start. not even white supremacy. It doesn't, but that's, that's obviously a very malignant place it can go to. Maybe just start off with the fact that a hell of a lot of, unfortunately, ex-soldiers go postal when they go. Yeah. Pretty terrifying because oh, they're PTSD the ones that know how to yeah. do it. They know how to go postal with a bang, and that's terrifying. That's yeah. the scary part. Like, and and now we've told everyone to shelter in place, and uh, we haven't told them for how long. And <laughs> and no one has toilet paper. And so, like, this is a bad combination. The supermarket. Um, so New World Metro on Willow Street in Wellington has heaps of toilet paper. That's great. So I'll tell my California friends that, the, that Wellington, New Zealand has adequate toilet paper. Thank you, Fuck you, America. We got toilet paper. Come and get us. Uh, I wouldn't goad them. <laughs> That's a good sign off. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Thanks for this apocalyptic episode of the Undiplomatic Podcast. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic if you want to sign up for World Politics Review newsletter. And buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. Peace. <laughs>